You know, I, I was just feeling great on the on the last lap because you know I, I'm really thankful to my to my mates. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 115 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's thankful for their mates. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash Carter Jones. And yes, we are starting with a review today. This podcast is a goldmine by Michael Wright from Australia. I can't believe it's taken me so long to review this fantastic podcast. Damien is thorough, well-researched, and very open. Instead of just saying, thou shall do, whatever the training fad of the month is, Damien really tries to develop understanding so writers can make their own educated decisions. This podcast is an absolute goldmine. Michael, thank you very much for taking the time out to write that review, and definitely better late than never. So if you do like the show, I would love a review on either iTunes or Stitcher, because... Five stars makes me go. Tonight, I celebrate my love for you. Thank you very much. And the performance probe this week, probe number one, do core stabilization exercises enhance cycling efficiency? Core is one of those words that has been thrown around for a long time. No one really knows what it means, but we're talking about the center, the middle part of your body, and everything that wobbles around in there. The core stabilization exercises have been advertised as potential enhancers of endurance and efficiency in cycling. A steady core is said to allow for proper body positioning, preventing unnecessary energy loss, and thus will allow for maintaining speed and power for a longer time. I'm quoting directly from the article here, but previous studies published on core stabilization training in other sports show mixed results. However, no studies addressing a potential effect of gross cycling efficiency have been published. So the aim of this study was to analyze the possible effect of an eight-week core stability training program on trunk balance and gross cycling efficiency. So 13 well-trained cyclists were included in on an eight-week core stability training program. The daily program consisted of both static and dynamic versions of the plank, the side plank, the bird dog, superman, cycling crunch, and pulse up exercises lasting an average of 10 minutes per session. If you don't know any of those funkily named exercises, then they're pretty easy to find, and I definitely use a lot of those in my programming. But steady state oxygen uptake and cycling efficiency were determined. Grip strength and Y balance tests were used to measure balance and training compliance was monitored using an online log. So cycling efficiency and core stability measurements were performed at baseline and after eight weeks. So what were the results? An improvement in gross cycling efficiency could not 
be found. Average at baseline was 22%, after training 22.5%, which was not significant. Compliance to the program was very good, with an average of 84% of sessions trained. All participants demonstrated an improvement in posterolateral reach, which is kind of the ability to bend backwards. Three participants reported an episode of lower back discomforts, which they attributed to the Superman exercise, which is a little funky. I don't know if you would be doing a Superman exercise in the gym. So the results did not show an improvement in cycling efficiency after an eight-week core stability training program. However, the current sample size is small, and in two participants, they were unable to accurately determine cycling efficiency. So their conclusion is, as competitions can be won or lost in fractions of seconds, improving one's gross efficiency by means of core stability training could be beneficial. The results of our current pilot study can be used to power future research in this area common conclusion guys common conclusion but really no conclusion so that was kind of to be expected for me I prescribe core and stability exercises to my athletes not really to hold a certain position on the bike because for me nothing beats being in that position on the bike so if you want to get better in the drops ride in the drops same thing for a TT bike or any position that you want to hold on a bike But the reason that I prescribe stability exercises is because along with mobility, it forms the foundation of movement. And then movement forms the foundation of strength, then power, and then off to the side, it plays a role in endurance as well. So I believe you can't actually train properly without it. And I hope you start to get the idea that if you are compromising your movement, then you're compromising your strength, power, and endurance. So it sounds pretty fundamental to me. Number two is a quick video. It's Sky Christofferson on Quantified Self and the London Olympics. If you have followed along with the podcast for a while, you will know I'm into Quantified Self. I don't personally quantify a lot of my life, but I'm definitely aware of the trends that are happening because I believe a lot of it can help cyclists. And Sky Christofferson is at the forefront of this. He has done personal experiments which have been successful, and this is him rolling this out for the US women's track cycling team while they train for the London Olympics. And in this video, he runs through a few of the tech and the ideas he used through this process. But part of this is a performance model that puts the athlete at the center, and there's nothing new when you think about that. But the interesting part is all this data that's around the athlete, and he's collecting different types of data from different sources. And there's a whole bunch of different gadgets that he's using to collect this data, everything from the usual power meter data to sleep tracking to continuous glucose monitoring. And the real challenge was that once he had all this data, what was he going to do with it? Because he quickly ran out of computing power on a standard laptop and a spreadsheet. So they introduced a commercial option that allowed them to to run linear regressions, which is taking two measurements and putting them together to look for correlations. And he believes this is where the power started to come into it. One of the actionable things that came out of the analysis was to do with deep sleep. And deep sleep is where you release human growth hormone and testosterone naturally. So it's one of those places that you want to get to if you're trying to recover from hard, intense workouts. And what they found was when the temperature was lower in the actual bedroom, then they were able to get more minutes of deep sleep. 
So as an example, we're talking changes of around plus 30 minutes of deep sleep when going from a room temperature, in the case of Sky himself, from 66 degrees Fahrenheit, which is around 18 degrees C. But he was quick to state that it's different for each person. So another example was light exposure, which is something that I read about a while back regarding this project in particular. They saw that morning light exposure without sunglasses was leading to improved sleep latency, which is the time it takes for you to fall asleep at night. And he sees this as being based on circadian rhythms, and then circadian rhythms are the driver of hormones and recovery all to do with this sleep process as well. So they were really dialing this in. And even at one point in sunny England, they had the riders eating breakfast in front of light boxes. And also they were adding to this when normally they would wear sunglasses on morning rides, they would not wear sunglasses. So it would allow their body to recognize the light and not block out this natural circadian rhythms that they were developing and really fine tuning. So all this stuff is really fascinating. And when I think about it, what really interests me is how unsophisticated all of this stuff is. Yes, they're using the latest technology in these areas, but even the latest technology still feels a little underdone. Plus, they are still working on how best to use the data and their solutions seem a little clumsy when it comes to putting all of the information together. So I really think there's a big opportunity here for someone with real data skills to step up. Someone like Robbie Ketchell from Garmin Sharp, someone like that can come in and really make a difference to the future of our sport. But what I want to do is pose the question to you. Do you have the skills to do this? Are you a big data person? Do you know how to put this data together because I think there is a big opportunity here to really move cycling forward and to take Sky's actual motto, which is data, not doping. I think there can be a real performance benefit to doing this. Alrighty, the nuts and bolts today. Turning pro, the Carter Jones way. If you don't know Carter Jones, then you're probably not in the US and not keeping an eye on the US domestic scene, or at least not even watching Tour of Cali, Tour of Gila, Tour of Utah, because US pro cyclist Carter Jones has signed with team giant Alpecin. The former Jelly Belly, Trek Livestrong, Bissell, and Optum rider has signed a two-year deal to step up to world tour level. I do want to make a quick mention here of Phil Guyman because we found out in the last couple of days he will be returning to the U.S. domestic scene and taking Carter Jones's place in the Optum team. Absolute bummer, Phil. I feel really sorry for you, but this is just going to form your story and hopefully it keeps you hungry to keep moving forward. But anyway, let's get back to Carter Jones. And today we're talking to Carter Jones's coach, Dr. Stephen McGregor. He has been on the show talking about Carter's development specifically. So I thought it would be interesting to bring him back and talk about actually this last push that got him into a World Tour team. We left off last year around the same time, just as Carter had a breakout year. He had won the KOM jersey at the Tour of California, and he was looking on the up and up. And he definitely followed up this year with more great results, a big win at the Tour of Hila, taking out the GC. So we get behind the process of planning 2014 and some of the considerations that a US domestic rider has to make, especially if they're at the top of their game and looking to make the leap into world tour level.
actually want to take it back to the start of last year. So I want to get behind the planning process a little bit as you being the coach of Carter Jones. And if we can take it back a year ago, Carter has just signed with a new team, Optum Mm. presented by Kelly Benefit Strategies. Carter is quoted as saying, I just set my goals on improving over last year, looking for improvement year to year. Frankly, I surprised myself last year. I was like, oh, I can climb. Climbing is all about confidence. Luckily, I was able to gain that confidence, so I want to improve on that. So when you sat down with him to plan the season ahead, where did you start? So first of all, the planning process is is kind of flexible because you don't know the details. Like even going into December last year, I don't think we knew the details of his schedule. He had a rough outline because you assume they're going to get invites to the major races. And those of primary uh, concern were Gila was going to be one that was an objective, and then California was going to be one that was an objective, and, and Utah and Colorado. Those are the races that, that first of all, they're UCI races. So for a rider that wants to take the step from the continental level to the world tour level or even the pro county level, you really need to be doing well in UCI races because that's where the big teams are going to be. That's where you're going to get the most notoriety. You're going to actually get UCI points. So when when you're planning down the road, okay, you're anticipating you're going to get invites to those races. And so those are the ones you you think about. Okay, so we, we assume that we're going to have California. We assume we're going to have Gila, which we, is a race that we know is suited to him. We assume he's going to be at Utah, and we assume that he's going to be at Colorado. The details of those races aren't known in advance. The only the, where they're going to be on the schedule is really the only thing you know, and then you're kind of crossing your fingers you get get the invite. So that's the main thing. You set up the, 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 the notion of you want to be going well at those races, and then kind of the other things are secondary. There was a UCI race early on in the schedule that we assumed they would be doing in Portugal. They talked about doing one in, in we assumed would be in Mexico early in the season. So you, you want to be going well enough early in the season not to get shelled and hope you can maybe get a result in those early races. Because historically, you know, again, I've been working with him for, for a long time. And we know that historically he can do well. Like he, he first actually got the attention of the Pro Tour teams several years ago when he was on the podium at Redlands as a 19-year-old, I think, 19 or 20-year-old. Redlands is really early in the season, but it's, it's a race that's relatively high profile because there's not a lot going on that time of year. And he was up there with some, you know, some established riders. Uh, so we know he can go well that, that part of the season. But the trick is, and as Guyman mentioned in his article, he's, you want to go well early in the season but you've also there's a season in may june july august it's a long season for a pro and you want to make sure that you're not burning all your matches to coin kind of the race phrase early on in the season so anyway you kind of lay that out and say okay here are the races we want to do well at there's no single peak it's not like when you think about you know when you read the coaching books um you talk about that one season peak and even chapters i've written in books about periodization that oftentimes you set up a program based on a particular event a particular objective world championships for some riders um national championships for other riders just for your local joe or even just some race they're going to do in their neighborhood that they're they want to do well at in this type of scenario you couldn't put all your eggs in one basket. We targeted Gila, you target California, you target Utah, you target 
a number of races over the course of the season and hope you can do well at all of them. And so that's kind of a tricky balancing act because you have to have good fitness over a relatively long period of time. And that means you might sacrifice the best fitness, but at the same time, uh, you still have to be fit, if that makes sense. So so that's kind of where we start is like what you've done in the past, assuming you're getting invites to those races that are going to be objectives, and then that kind of lays the foundation. What's interesting in the Velo News article that you wrote is that you can actually see a bit of this strategy play out because you have a performance management chart, or you have two performance management charts, one 2013 and then up to 2014. And you could actually make out in those charts that 2014 was a little bit more aggressive at times when you were building fitness, but then you're also balancing out by uh, rest or you know having a declining CTL at some points. If you look at the two peaks between, well, one peak between 2013 and 2014, 2014 is actually lower, but I hear the explanation behind that, especially if it's relative to freshness, it's relative to any events that are going on, because everybody's season is so unique, their objectives are so unique, so there's all these factors that go into it, and it's not just some number chasing to get to a peak that's going to mean you're going to perform at your best. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think that the great thing right now is the tremendous amount of information and data that we have from an analytics standpoint to the metrics we have at our disposal, the power, all the metrics within the power analysis, the, the modeling, and, and they're great. I think the trap that a lot of people, a lot of people fall into, even people that have, that are, are experienced athletes, they fall into is chasing the numbers rather than chasing the performance is that a high CTL is important for somebody that wants to race at a UCI level stage race, you know, you have to have a high level of fitness. So, for example, just to attach numbers to it, you're not going to race uh, the Tour of Utah and do well at Tour of Utah with a CTL of 80. Uh, it's just not going to happen. Uh, that being said, driving your CTL up to 160, 170, 180 in preparation for Utah is not going to win you the Tour of Utah. Mm-hmm. Having a high level of fitness in, in terms of a CTL, it does not translate to performance. It's a contributor. It's a factor. But it's not performance. So, for example, in the case of Carter, who was racing, he was arguably the best domestic stage racer last year in the U.S. Uh, I had age groupers that have higher CTLs than he does um, because it's, a, again, the nature of the interaction of racing and training is that you have to put recoveries in there to make sure that you're not overcooked. Um, and the racing from you know, the Tour of California, the Tour of Gila, is more strenuous and imparts more fatigue than an age grouper can experience. You know, the, can have an age grouper go and train 25, 30 hours a week, and there's no way they can impart the same level of fatigue that will come from a one-week UCI stage race. And so again, the, the, the strategy for that age grouper, who is arguably, I have a couple that are that are ranked number one in the country for their age group in, in say, the time trial. The strategy for those individuals is still different. The high CTL is good, but the high CTL is not the be-all and end-all. And so we have these numbers that we use for information, but I just use it for informational purposes to inform me. And we still have to say, okay, well, there's more to this than just the simple numbers, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a good point that you bring up there that having a CTL over 150 
doesn't instantly mean you're going to be winning every single race. Um, right. There's that thing of what makes up the TSS itself, as well as yeah, all these other factors that you're kind of talking about. Um, I did notice that this year you were able to get Carter to the start line at a CTL of 150 TSS a day at around plus 16 TSB, which in my mind is pretty good. So pretty awesome coaching there. Well, it, it, <laughs> it's, it, there's there's a lot of um, uh, hand wringing in the lead up to that, you know. So again, the the plans are the plans, and then the way things play out don't necessarily match the plans. And so, uh, but yeah, that that's kind of the objective is that I have in my uh, in my experience, and actually that I've I've presented a lot of that information out there now that that I think that in general a CTL of 150 is getting into kind of the optimal CTL range that as you get past that level, you're kind of getting to um, maybe a little bit too much. Um, uh, but, you know, it's, is it 150? Is it 160? Was it, is it 170? Still, someone's going to compete in a high-level UCI race. 150 is a nice number to have from a CTL standpoint. And then having a TSB that's less than 20 and more than 10 <laughs> is is kind of the objective. But again, the, that getting there is, uh, is, is not necessarily always possible. So things worked out well. It was nice. Putting into perspective of what a 150 TSS a day is, you're talking around 20 hours plus of work. So if you're talking the strategy of trying to maintain that all year to be able to hit all these different races, then it's it's a lot of work and it's pretty tough mentally as well, I think, to stay on top of that. Yeah, and that's one of the questions. I'll say it's not necessarily even a question. I think one of the, the double-edged sword of, of having a high fitness level is actually having a high fitness level is that to maintain that, you actually have to push and keep pushing against increasingly uh, high resistances. Um, so I don't think the response to training – well, I, I know the response to training is not linear. So as you raise your CTL higher and higher and higher, it's harder to maintain that high CTL. So you get into a situation where that if you have a persistently high CTL, that means you're training a lot and you're training hard, that that is going to potentially – come back to bite you down the road is maybe overtraining as just simply mental fatigue, burnout, whatever you want to call it. There's all sorts of things that can be negative aspects of, of a high level of training. And that's why probably when I, when I talked to, um, uh, I was, I was at, uh, you know, wearing my scientist hat this past year at the, at, at the American college of sports medicine and talking with some guys from the AIS, uh, Australian Institute of sport. And we were talking about how, the higher level you get when you get to like the world tour level or or even um, high level, the elite level in any endurance sport, the athletes seem to respond better to a block approach than a traditional just linear giving lots of training uh, and backing off every now and then because those blocks are hard and they provide a lot of stimulus, but then you, you get a, a, a big break. Um, and allow the the mental side of the equation, or maybe it is the physiological side of the equation, to to regenerate and rebound. Um, so it becomes increasingly difficult to maintain those high CTLs, and that's why you see typically in high level athletes larger fluctuations in their PMCs than you might see again in an age grouper who is primarily constrained by their time they can devote to training. If training is all you do, then you can spend 30 or 40 hours at it, but is that of any benefit because you just pound yourself into the ground type of thing? 
this was something I was going to ask you. When you get up to that level, if you are doing more of a traditional week, what does a rest day look like? Does it mean that you have to go out and hit zone two for five, six hours just to kind of sustain the level that you're at so then you can hopefully build on that when you're doing intensity workouts? Or it's interesting that you bring up block training because that that approach is totally different where you just go until you drop basically, but you've accumulated so much over a short period of time that you can afford a bit of the time off. Yes. So, well, in the case of cycling, especially block training also uh, from a specificity standpoint mimics um, the type of racing you're going to do in a lot of cases. If you're a GC rider, you're going to be doing block types of events. Um, so recovery, I think recovery changes relative to the individual. Uh, so again, as you get to that high level, um, I think that uh, recovery becomes, again, you still have to, even though you recover, you still have to spend a fair bit of time doing what you're doing just because you have to be accustomed to riding a lot. So in those recovery weeks, and that's something that a lot of times it's hard for people to wrap their, their head around is that they're easy from, a, from an intensity standpoint. The days are easy from an intensity standpoint, but they're still relatively large volume. They're still three-hour, four-hour recovery sessions. And part of that, you can kind of go back to a, a, a physiological explanation. Is, and the way I typically explain it to people is that your slow twitch muscle fibers are the ones we use when we're riding easy. And our fast switch ones are the ones we use when we're riding hard. And so riding long and easy maintains the stimulus on the slow twitch muscle fibers to a certain extent and allows them to stay trained, if you will, while giving the fast switch fibers a rest. And those are the ones that get fatigued. Our slow twitch muscle fibers are, are, are relatively resilient. And so that's why you know a person who has a really high level of fitness can generally tolerate and benefit from a recovery session that's say three hours long within uh, a day or two you may want to keep that relatively short but um, over the long term if you take too many days of an hour and a half those add up and you lose fitness too fast so the way you accumulate fitness or maintain fitness can still come from doing high volumes of relatively low intensity um, and that still gives your fast switch muscles a chance to recover. So they are, quote-unquote, rest days or recovery days, even though they're still high volume. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. When talking about the numbers in regards to Carter, you don't have to bring up specifics when it comes to his power numbers, but we talked last time about this gradual process of, you know, every year you adding a little bit, a little bit. But it seems like there was a big change in something this year and whether that was confidence in his writing rather than the power numbers did you see a big increase in his power numbers any specific ones that sort of had a big jump i would say no big no big jump again this is an individual that i've been working with he's been training at a high level he was on the junior national team so he's been training at a high level for you know, for a decade almost, and even though he's still a relatively young rider, he's still he's been training a lot for a long time, and you're not going to see huge jumps in power numbers uh, probably at, at this point in time. That being said, there were some increases in his longer duration numbers, and those are the the ones that are probably most valuable as you get to the top level of the sport. Um, once you get to the top level of the sport, 
everybody has a pretty big engine. You know, everybody has a high V2 max, if you will, the V2 max being a physiological variable that would dictate your your five to min, ten minute power. And he's always had a relatively high five to ten minute power. You know, that was why he did well at Redlands as a 19 year old because the prologue was a ten minute effort and he, he excelled at five to ten minute efforts at that point. Um, what you get as you get older is the ability to sustain longer duration efforts past two, past three hours. And especially as you get to the UCI level of races, you're talking about needing to be able to sustain efforts for four hours plus. And so the year before, if we go back to 2013, that was the first year he had really because we talked before about he had some difficulties the two years previous that really hampered his development. But last year when he did California, he was king of mountains at, at California. That required him getting in breakaways for, for an entire day in a UCI race. And that is a tremendous training stimulus that almost is impossible to to get any other way because doing that, you're not even worried about how you finish the race necessarily, is that the objective is to get into the breakaway and accumulate the points for the mountains. So you're putting out a big effort during the breakaway and the finish on the day is almost secondary. Um, so you don't have to save yourself as much. So that actually was is a really good developmental experience to get in those early breakaways and be riding off the front for the whole day, that actually really builds your fitness in a way that not much else can. So we had that experience. And then again, in 2013, he had the experience in, in being in a breakaway, a long breakaway at the Tour of Utah that putting him in position. He had a couple long breakaways in Utah. Again, then the, the, the finish became something that he worried about more as he got into the race. And so then, again, another situation where you're not necessarily worrying about saving yourself for the finish. But so then Colorado, he was he was being more tactical at Colorado. So that helped build, from a racing standpoint, his long duration power numbers. And then we built on top of it uh, in, in the winter and during the season of uh, 2014, going into 2014, just kind of build on that foundation. So those were the where the big improvements really came is by having better three four hour power that translates to being still strong at the end of a four or five hour stage in a race again day after day in a, in a one week stage race i hear a couple of things that you're saying there and the first one definitely is that yeah over time you need to build that base so you can get to the end of races and access the talent that you've had from a young age that you've been developing so that's that's kind of the key factor the other one it seems that there was a lot of belief by going out in these attacks and pulling them off you're talking from a physiological standpoint but it seems that he would have got a lot of confidence from going into these not knowing but then still hanging on at the end and then you know just repeating this process and getting more and more confident with with his abilities yeah i think that's a big part of it that simply riding at the top level that you look at people that you see as being at a different level and then all of a sudden you're riding with them, riding next to them um, and seeing them breathe in through their mouth um, when you're maybe breathing through your nose or, or you're both suffering to the same extent um, and that says, okay, well, I can ride with these guys. Um, and then once you can ride with them, then as I tell everybody that once you're in the fight – once you're, once you get to the podium, then you can win. Uh, once you're in the breakaway, then you can get a result. Um, so, learning how to be there and getting comfortable with being there, 
guy. I was reading Diamond's report from uh, from uh, from Velenews when he did his little his little blog report and talking about being at the table and just being at the table, being in those breakaways. You're you're at the table and being comfortable seeing that the people that you looked up to before. They're on the same level as you are. They suffer just like you do, and that means that, okay, if they suffer like you do, then you can make them hurt, and you can best them. So uh, I think that was that was a big part of it the year before, both physiologically and, and, and psychologically, so that when Utah came around and Cadell's uh, you know, putting in an attack and nobody else can hang with Cadell on the attack, he goes with him and he stays with him because he knows that he can do it. And yeah, it's going to hurt. It's going to suffer, but and he's going to suffer, but he's not going to blow. He's going to be able to hold on to it and get over the top with him. So, so yeah, I think that's that's a big part of it. Those improvements are are psychological to to a large extent, and they're also incremental. That they're showing that you can hang a little bit longer and do a little bit more, but that prevents you from cracking when ninety percent of the other riders are going to crack, and then all of a sudden you're in the top ten percent. Um, so there's a relatively small differences that result in big performance improvements in the result sheet. Yeah, and now he gets the opportunity to uh, play a whole new game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just want to wrap up talking about your role in this change from going from the U.S. scene to the World Tour and mm-hmm. uh, what that means for you as a coach working with a World Tour team and how your relationship with the team and, and, and him how that works or how it will work you think uh that has yet to be determined so that's that's always the wrench in the works is that most of the 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 lower tier teams the the continentals and even the pro continentals don't necessarily have an extensive training staff so those riders either are kind of on their own or have an own, their own personal coach, and then once they get to the world tour level, then there's a there's an in-house staff that is responsible for setting up the program and and setting up the training. So those uh, situations are still to, to be worked out. The team that he's going into, from the mm-hmm. outside, it looks like it has a very solid performance team behind the whole process. So uh, right. At least if you can get a look into that, I think that would be pretty exciting as well, especially because they are one of the world's leading teams now. They've proved their process. Once you get to that level, the in-season is essentially you're racing and recovering. So the old adage about you get into the race and recovery period, and, and when we talk about it um, with within the coaching clinics that, you know, for – Again, an age grouper or a cat two in the States, they get into the race and recovery season, a crit season in June, let's say, and you're racing hard and recovering, um, you're, you're giving up fitness. That is actually the process that goes on from February to, to September in a, in a world tour rider. So again, it becomes a, a matter of just kind of managing the responses to the races that are essentially just coming nonstop. Uh, so so we'll, we'll see. Thank you very much for your time again. I really do appreciate all the information that you have and you, you share with me and the audience of SemiPro. And uh, if you can just remind people again where they can find you online. So I work with the Peaks Coaching Group, peakscoachinggroup.com. That's the primary place for my, my cycling activities. You know, again, I have a, a scientist hat I wear as well at Eastern Michigan University, but um, most of my performance stuff is related to peakscoachinggroup.com. Okay, the tech hacks and products section, and this week we're talking about bike shoes, but not just any bike shoes. 
customizable bike shoes, but not the ones that cost over a thousand bucks. I'm talking about Luck Cycling Shoes. They're a Spanish company. They've been around for a long time. I can remember their time shoe ripoffs back in the late 90s. But now they have a customization program which looks very, very promising. You may have heard about this company in the last few months because they're apparently going to release a shoe with a power meter in it, which would definitely be a first in cycling. But this customization offering that they've put together now is pretty cool. It's kind of like Nike's Nike ID or Oakley or Trex Project One. It's a little clunky with the interface, but there are a lot of customization options and it doesn't add to the cost of the actual shoe. So you're able to customize graphics and you're able to add a logo and even a name, but it's not just at a superficial level that you can customize. You can actually customize the type of midsole, dysmetria correction and biomechanical correction. If you don't know what that is, then maybe it's not necessary, but if you do, you'll know that it's pretty difficult out there to get a shoe under probably a thousand bucks that specifically caters to your needs. The cost of the shoe is 265 euros. It is only available with one type of shoe, the Invicta shoe, which is the top of their range. It has everything that other pro shoes have, which I want to make a quick comment about shoes. It seems like they all look the same. I know they can't be, but they're definitely, they're starting to look all the same out there. So this will definitely help you separate yourself a little bit, which is kind of where all of cycling is going, more fashion oriented. I'll put the link in the show notes so you can check it out. And definitely, if you do design one, I would love to see a picture of what you come up with because I'm looking for inspiration for a set myself. Now, that quote from the top of the show, it's Mikhail Kwiatkowski. I've definitely butchered that, but whatever. The 2014 Elite Men's Road Race World Champion, bam. This ride was so good. I've got to say it was nearly as good as last year's race. It wasn't as good as last year's race. That was one of the best world championships or races, hands down, I've ever seen. But if I'm giving Mikhail credit, then definitely it must have been a good ride because Gerens came in second and he would have won the bunch kick. But Mikhail is a worthy winner. One little tidbit from the attack. Do you know that he topped out at 84 kilometers down that hill on his own in the wet? Well done, Mikhail. I can't wait to see you rocking the jersey. And hopefully you don't get the world champ curse, which again, I believe happened this year to Rui Costa. And that's it. You have been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash Carter Jones to find any links used in this week's episode. From there, you can click on any coaching link on the site or visit semiprocycling.com forward slash coaching for more information on our coaching packages. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 